Hello, everyone. I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And this is episode 21 of Rolling Release, our weekly podcast about the perpetual improvement of Linux. How you doing this week, Richard? Pretty good. Awesome. Enjoying my last few days of break. Yeah, same here. Uh, so there was a lot of news in the last two weeks since we've done an episode, and this week a new uh, vulnerability hit, um, two new vulnerabilities, Meltdown and Spectre. Uh, Richard, what do you know about these? So basically these are two vulnerabilities inside the way processors deal with information that allows um, a person who writes a script or an attack well enough to basically get information that should not be normally allowed access to. So Spectre allows an attacker to bypass checks on data read from like locations in the address space. That basically means one program can read any memory of another program that it normally like wouldn't have access to. And then Meltdown allows a program to actually read the operating system's kernel address space. So it could read right from kernel's memory, which is generally something that only like a driver or piece of the kernel itself can access, not a user program. And so basically both of them exploit performance features, which are in the um, processors, which is caching and speculative execution. The main thing they use is the speculative execution. And then they use caching to kind of pull from that information. So basically speculative execution is the idea in a processor that a processor kind of executes instructions that think might be executed, but we're not sure of kind of in a branch. And so when it executes that stuff, it loads data from those places and then leaves them in cache. And you can then use the pull that information from the cache if you know the timing and how the exact system would work. Mm -hmm. And so basically, one of the main issues with this is like at first people were saying, well, this is only a physical access thing. If the program is running on your computer, it can only be if it's running like as a native application. So unless you install a shady program or something, you'd mostly be fine. Right. But there have recently been, there's always recently a proof of concept for it in as a JavaScript attack, which is much more dangerous because obviously this could just be code embedded inside an ad on a site that you're going to, or just embedded in some site where they didn't have physical access to your machine at all. And in it, they were able to basically, so in this tweet in the, um, the next web article, he talks about how they could use JavaScript and then actually attack, where is it, when run allows JavaScript to read private memory from the process in which it runs, including Chrome itself. So it could read various things on the page that normally wouldn't have access to. And oh. I assume this could even, although it wasn't the proof of concept, but then it could even probably read other, it might be able to read into other memory on other programs on your computer, which would be much worse. Hmm. So that's the gist of what I know. Basically the Raspberry Pi article actually explains why Raspberry Pis are not vulnerable to this, and it's okay. because they don't use speculative execution. Oh, And so that's because their processors don't even bother trying to speculate on it at all, which overall you would think is, is reduced performance. Right. Now, ARM processors in general, there are some ARM processors with this vulnerability. It's just all the current Raspberry Pis out there do not use those ARM processors that use speculation. Mm -hmm. For example, the Cortex set A7 and Cortex A53 cores in the Raspberry Pi do not have speculation, but there are other ARM processors that do. Basically, AMD, ARM, and Intel all have some processors that are vulnerable to these attacks. Okay. I heard that AMD was only vulnerable to one of these. I think Spectre and not Meltdown. Is that correct? Um, actually, I don't know the specifics on that, but that sounds probably accurate. Right. I know that all of them have some that are vulnerable to some of them. Right. Um, and we, there have been a lot of talk about performance hits that people have taken, um, when installing 
updates to fix these things because it's is it because it's disabling the speculative execution or is it just I think in the case of Linux it's randomizing the address layout more from what I remember from the I don't know if yeah and this was that's more the end that I didn't know a whole lot about I kind of researched more the technical end of this because the Raspberry Pi article has the detail has like really great explanation of like what each of the parts of a modern processor are and how they kind of aid or in this case, like in Raspberry Pis, essentially don't allow the vulnerability to happen just because they don't have those features. Mm-hmm. But so if you're interested in that, it's a really good read. But yeah. I didn't want to cover the whole thing in this because it would take quite a long time. Yeah, there will be lots of articles in the show notes um, on our website if you want to read more into this. Red Hat's got a really great write-up that really puts this into layman's terms and explains what speculative execution is um, and how the the attacks work. And the Linux kernel developers have actually been working on a solution to this problem for several months. There was an article actually from October um, that I remembered reading when I heard about Spectre and Meltdown that the Linux kernel developers were already trying to push through some of these changes that are leading to these uh, between 5% and 30% reduction in CPU efficiency. They've been working on this stuff for months. Um, They didn't know that there were actual practical attacks that these issues could lead to. Um, So before, people were kind of arguing, should we be changing this security thing if it's going to affect performance that much? But now that Spectre and Meltdown have been published, uh, which I think Google was the one who published the initial thing, right? Google, yeah, their Zero blog or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, now that now that Google's published that, the Linux kernel developers, there's no more arguments. They're just pushing it through regardless of the um, performance hits. Uh, but those same performance hits are still going to be on Windows and all other operating systems because this is at the processor level. I just thought it was interesting that the kernel developers have been working on this even before they knew it was a practical problem. Now, I also saw Canonical was informed of this issue, um, and Red Hat and others were as well, before the public was informed of them. And these, I'm, I'm not sure if it was a leak, but the issues were actually published sooner than they were supposed to be. Did you hear anything about that, Richard? Yeah, I did hear it was earlier than people were prepared for, like... And I assume the practical code was released earlier than people were prepared for, right? Because at this point, I guess we're saying the people that they already knew there was an issue with this, but we just didn't know the code could actually clearly take advantage and like actually manipulate it and do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. If you do want to take a look at where all the the different Linux distros are at with regards to patching these issues, and if you want to take a look at where the kernel is at with patching these issues. Like I said, there will be some links to uh, Linux Weekly News, Canonical's blog, Red Hat's blog, in the show notes. Canonical has a timeline on their website of when the issue was supposed to be disclosed, when Ubuntu was informed of it. So yeah, I guess that's about all we'll talk about it in the video, because a lot of this stuff, you just got to read it for yourself to really get a good understanding of it. But um, basically patch or install your patches, install your updates for whatever operating system you're on. Some of the Linux updates have already been pushed to different distros and they're still pushing more as they're working out corner cases and things, both to um, try and keep performance as high as possible, but also to fix all possible versions of the vulnerabilities. So yeah, there's that. Um, next story is a little bit more positive. In our last episode, we talked about the Linux journal shutting down because of a lack of funding. Well, very surprising, on January 1st of this year, 
uh, Linux Journal put out a blog post that they were actually saved financially by, get this, a group called Private Internet Access. That is a VPN company, and this was really surprising to me, Richard. I have been seeing this name pop up a lot. Have you noticed this? Yeah. Certainly in these articles I read this week, it was mentioned a fair amount. Yeah, so... Private Internet Access is the same group that when Creta was having tax issues last year, Private Internet Access came in and said, hey, we'll pay everything you owe um, and get you out of the, the rut that you're in. Um, and so they basically saved the Creta project. Um, in 2017, Private Internet Access also became a patron of KDE, which that's the highest level of sponsor alongside like Google, Canonical, some really big names. Private Internet Access came in there and... and paid KDE a whole bunch to become a patron. Now they're bailing out the Linux journal, apparently not even just taking care of their debts, but they're, quote, committed to making it bigger and better than we were before. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Private Internet Access has certainly been funding a whole lot of, uh, of free and open source projects recently. Um, on Reddit, a lot of people have been saying, oh yeah, I I've, I've saw that they've been doing all this stuff and I've been purchasing VPN services from them. So it's definitely working as an advertising thing. Um, I just thought it was really interesting that that's happening. And yeah, Linux Journal 2.0 apparently is coming. I'm not sure what all that entails. I think they're collecting suggestions right now. But yeah, that'll be very interesting to see where the Linux Journal goes. And that is one source of Linux news that you can go to if you're uh, yeah wanting to read about Linux stuff. Another thing we mentioned in our previous episode was the bug that corrupted the BIOS of certain laptops when you installed Ubuntu and other distributions. The bug was a kernel-level bug, and basically it made it so that your BIOS would not save settings anymore. Um, since that episode, we just wanted to let you guys know that an update was issued. Uh, starting with kernel version 4.13.0, the issue was fixed, and installing Ubuntu or any other distro would not corrupt your BIOS or break your BIOS in any way. Um, however, if you are already affected, you're going to need to install, um, I think that the version is actually 4.14 you need to install. This article or this uh, bug report says 4.15 in their example post. But is if you update your kernel to 4.15 or higher, then your BIOS will go back to normal and you'll be able to save again. As long as you can boot into whatever distro you installed in the first place, then you can now release your BIOS settings and install something else if you wish. Um, so that's pretty big. We had a lot of, uh, I've actually had some people commenting throughout the past few months, Richard, on my Ubuntu installation video saying that it messed up their BIOS. And before we covered that story a couple weeks ago, I thought they just didn't know what they were talking about. Cause I'm like, that's impossible that yeah. you know, uh, having a, a Linux distribution affect your BIOS. But yeah, I've been uh, responding to people's comments, letting them know, hey, just so you know, this issue has been identified and fixed. Um, so that's good news to a lot of people. So once again, make sure you install your kernel updates. There's just no, there's no good reason not to install your kernel updates. Good things generally happen when you install your kernel updates. So um, there's an update on that. Okay, so for this next article, um, I want to talk some about elementary OS. So they did a fairly long year in review article that talks about some of the different things they've done over this year and the different things they're proud of. But at the end of the article, they mostly focus on their new version that they're designing, Juno, which is going to be built around 18.04 of Ubuntu, which is interesting because that's not even out yet, but they're already trying to get ready for it, which I think is probably 
a good sign that they're this far ahead in the game and already starting to build towards it. And yeah. one of this article, this article on Medium only really mentions that. But another article mentions one of the main features they're talking about redoing is their text editor, which used to be called, well, which is currently called Scratch, if you have the latest version of elementary OS. In this new version, they're renaming it to Code. And they kind of said they wanted to focus on this because they like naming their applications based on exactly what they are. And they realized that Scratch was a name that was somewhat misinformative because, first of all, people were kind of confusing sometimes with the Scratch um, visual programming language, but also because it's really aimed at programming now and no longer down or being a basic text editor. And so to go along with that, they've said they've changed a lot of the default settings and they've made it so that several plugins, including their files plugin that shows all the files like wherever you are and symbols are both enabled by default. And um, they also made it so that lines, numbers are always shown by default, which is more helpful for, for programmers. And they modified the preferences setting to have like a greater focus on programming things like tabs versus spaces. And um, I think they mentioned it here too, but yeah, tab width, highlighting, cursor position information and header bar as well. And so this is going to be one of the big things they want to release in Juno and one of the big changes they want to make. Overall, to me, this actually seemed pretty interesting because I liked, I'd liked i like to have a kind of basic utility for code that has all this stuff included by default and I don't have to install anything for it. And it's kind of nice. But I thought you had kind of a different opinion on this. So, Yeah, I don't know about... Um rebranding the text editor to a code editor. If they wanted to make a new code editor, that would be one thing. Um, I've always thought of elementary OS as a distro for beginners. It looks like Mac OS. It's really sleek and easy to use. Um, so when somebody asks me who doesn't know how to use Linux, what distro should I use? I usually point to them in the past toward elementary OS. But the text editor is a really basic thing in a distribution. And the fact that they're no longer even including one I mean, this is a text editor, but they, they've got a quote in their article that says, we realized that the premise of a text editor is kind of silly. Um, so apparently they don't see the value in editing text files with a simple text editor. Um, I think that including a bunch of tools for coding is something that's nice for developers um, and programmers such as yourself, but I don't know if new users who are coming to Linux and just trying to edit a configuration file like a tutorial is telling them to do online or something like that, I don't know if having all the sidebars with a bunch of programming symbols and everything enabled by default is going to be helpful to them. I think it might clutter up their experience more than it's worth uh, for just a text editor. Yeah, and that's interesting because kind of they did rename it to code. So if you're just going through the programs, you're probably much less likely to be like, open this in code. You're probably right. not going to, if you're a new person to it. The icon I was thinking, well, has new brackets people, on it now instead of a pencil. Yeah. yeah. Often like new people would probably be using more Microsoft, like not Microsoft Word, but like LibreOffice or something yeah. to edit documents. But then I was thinking, yeah, if they want to edit a configuration file, they're probably not going to be opening Vim or Nano in Terminal. And they're yeah. probably not going to, they might be a little confused when they see all this additional stuff on the side. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even, mean, just, even just HTML files, you know, there's plenty of things you don't want to open in a full-fledged document editor like LibreOffice Writer or something. Um, yeah. And Windows has Notepad. They also have WordPad. Both of those are still included with Windows, right? Yeah. Um, so I Windows, think they are, though. I haven't checked for Windows 10 yet. If Win they're on there. Windows has a super simple, dumbed down, all it does is write things 
notepad and then they've got a slightly more sophisticated formatting capable WordPad. KDE is kind of the same way. I was telling Richard that it kind of reminds me when they say we could strip it down to hardly anything if we wanted just a text editor. And I use a program on KDE called KWrite that is hardly anything. Um, I can open it up here and uh, Richard, you won't be able to see it, but basically there's yeah. there's very little here. It's just a full white space where I can type words and there's a, you know, save and open buttons at the top. But KDE's default text editor is way more complicated than this. It's called Kate. And it includes a sidebar. It includes more toolbars. It includes uh, a lot more highlighting and, and indentation and things by default. Um, and I uninstalled that entirely because I wanted things to open by mm -hmm. default in KWrite. Uh, because when I want to edit a text file, I know what I'm doing with a text file. I don't need like suggestions about what I'm typing. Uh, you know, with configuration files and stuff, I just want it to show me the text in the format that it's supposed to be in. Um, and KWrite does that, and that's kind of what Notepad does on Windows. Um, and in the past, that was Scratch on Elementary, but now that they're they're making it sort of a light IDE, um, I don't exactly see where they're filling the need for the text editor, which I think is a need in a in a Linux distribution. Um, yeah. Because, you know, we I do have... I see your point there. Yeah, we do have lots of, of text-based configuration files, and sometimes you do just want to jot down a note, but you don't want to load up. You know, LibreOffice takes a couple seconds to load even on my computer. So, yeah. Yeah, for example, like a lot of my projects, I make quick to-do lists, you know, with the brackets where you can fill in a bracket with an X or a space, yeah. and I just, like quickly make to-do lists like that and then i use kate to like write those and then it's like prompting me based right. on other stuff i've written in the to-do list and like that's just kind of annoying i don't need it and then half the time i actually press enter and i actually add it there and it yeah. is somewhat of a pain when you're just trying to have something really simple right. but then of course they were talking about how they use the developers use i uh, was talking about in this article how they use um or use scratch now they're wanting to use code to write elementary os right which you can kind of see then they're not really in a way, I'm not sure they're actually necessarily the target consumer for right. it, like elementary OS. And it so all they're depends kind of changing it to what they need. Yeah, it depends on who they're targeting. I can't tell if elementary is trying to go for the developer um, space or if they're still going for the new user. Because System76 with their Pop! OS, I thought that they were going to be targeting new users because they sell computers. Instead, System76 went and made an entire distribution that's supposed to be good for developers. Uh, which, every Linux distribution is good for developers, that's why developers use Linux, but now we've got um, elementary pivoting away from new users and toward catering to developers, which even though it's, I'm sure this is nice for you, I'm not sure it's what we need to be filled in the in the Linux marketplace right now. Um, but that's what they're doing, so that's interesting. That new editor will be in the next version of Elementary OS um, Juno, like Richard said. And yeah, they have started even making alpha quality builds internally of Juno using the Ubuntu 18.04 repositories. Um, so the repos are already online, even though it's not out yet. Um, and I do think it's really interesting. I would have assumed elementary would take a while to even start based on the fact that they, they are based on an LTS and I associate LTS with old, uh, but it appears that even though they don't update often, they are quite on top of their updates when they do make them. All right. And our next story is something about Jack. Now, uh, Jack is the professional Linux sound system. Um, if you're making music or if you're doing audio production on Linux, the reason you can't just use Pulse Audio is supposedly because Pulse Audio has too much latency 
uh, to be any good for professional production. Now, I disagree. I like Paul Sadio a lot, um, and I don't think that a millisecond of delay is actually going to affect things when you're making sound stuff. Uh, but a lot of people disagree, and a lot of people, when you ask, how do I do audio production on Linux, they point you toward Jack. Now, this is a blog post on the KX Studio blog. KX Studio is a Linux distribution that is sort of a media production distribution. Um, and something I thought was really interesting about this, this is a release of Jack 2, uh, version 1.9.12. Not sure what's going on with their naming and versioning schemes there, but if you've ever tried to use Jack before, you've probably read on an FAQ somewhere or on a forum, somebody telling you that Jack 2 is not a newer version of Jack than Jack 1. There's Jack 1 and Jack 2, but they are just different implementations of the same protocol. Um, they're different versions, but one is not a newer version than the other, is what they've always said before. However, uh, with this blog post, there is a quote here, I am now maintaining uh, Jack 2 and also Jack 1. Um, and I guess the I would be uh, FalkTX is the name of the, is the username of the person who made this blog post. So we've got one person maintaining Jack and Jack 2, according to this post. And then also, Jack 1, as of this release, is now in bug fix mode only. They are not going to be adding any new features to Jack 1. It is going to be a reference implementation of the Jack protocol. But they're making this change because Jack 2, even today, even though it's been around for quite a while, it's still a little bit behind Jack 1. And it still does things a little bit differently than Jack 1. So with this change, they're trying to get Jack 1 and Jack 2 to share as much code as possible. Um, they're trying to get Jack 2 to use the same things as Jack 1 does. And a few things have been added into Jack 1 after Jack 2 was created. That's not going to happen anymore. The developer says the long battle of Jack 1 and Jack 2 needs to stop. And development of new features will now happen in the Jack 2 code base. Jack 1 will slowly become legacy. I think that's really interesting because it seems like a big reversal from what I have always read about Jack. It's always, is Jack 2, you know, in the FAQ, is Jack 2 newer than Jack 1? And the answer would be no, they're just different implementations of the same protocol. I've seen that quite a few times. And uh, yeah, this just seems like it makes more sense to have version 2 of something be a better and newer version than version 1. Uh, but yeah, that is a definitely an update so the next time you try and get into Jack, if you're not using Jack right now, before it was, oh, well, pick whichever one you want. You know, Jack 1, Jack 2, flip a coin. They're the same protocol, just different implementations. Um, and nobody could really provide any answers on which was actually better other than a few specific applications that worked better with one or the other. Uh, as of now, though, you're going to want to install Jack 2 because it is actually the newer version. Jack 1 is being obsoleted slowly now. Uh, possibly as a response to lack of development resources if we've really got one person now maintaining both versions of the Linux professional audio subsystem. But yeah, source code's all available online, and that new release of Jack 2 is out. You can read the blog post in the show notes for more information on that. All right, and so just a quick update. Spotify is now available as a Snap app on Ubuntu. So there's an OMG Ubuntu article that briefly discusses this. And basically... There's always you can always install it by adding the packages externally, or like and then getting it that way over command line. But they also now have added a snap and a flat pack available that you can get Spotify through. And um, interestingly enough, on their um, page on the snapcraft.io/spotify, 
They say Spotify for Linux is a labor of love from our engineers that wanted to listen to Spotify on their Linux development machines. And continue to say do not actually actively support um, Linux as a platform. And so that this is just kind of a client that they released because the people, their engineers who actually develop it, use Linux and wanted to be able to listen to Spotify on it. So that was pretty interesting. I thought that they actually use Linux internally. Yeah. And um, basically, they're not actively supporting it, they're saying. But from my experience, the Spotify app has always worked like fine on Linux. I've never had any problems with it. So overall, in fact, for the longest time, it didn't even display ads at all for me. Hmm. So even when I was on the free version, so right. actually, in my view, it worked better. But yeah. <laughs> So that was interesting. They have now actually gotten, one, one, from what I've used of Spotify, it now actually shows ads if you're under the free version on Linux. So hmm. I guess they fixed that bug eventually. Sure, that was high yeah, on you the can, priority list. It's now also available in Ubuntu software since that's integrated with the Snap and Flat or with Snap. And you can also just use sudo snap install Spotify to get it as well. But it's nice that you no longer have to bother going to their site and adding an external package or downloading a dev file. Yep. So that's pretty much it on that update. If you listen to Spotify and use Linux, then you might be able to get Spotify a lot easier. And if you want to get Spotify and not be forced to upgrade your proprietary application, it's it was already available as a flat pack before. Yeah. Um, next up, we've got a quick Wine update. 3.0 release candidate 4 is now available. Uh, Wine 3.0 is in feature freeze, but this release candidate has some bug fixes. Interesting that Wine is working toward a 3.0 release. I think they've got some new DirectX support in this new version. Um, seems like it'll be a big release since it is a major number release so yeah watch out for that in the coming weeks also just wanted to mention Krita put out an end of year blog post a week or two ago and they mentioned in that blog post first of all that private internet access saved them when they had their issues last year also though Krita which is the graphic design application it's made for digital artists it's a vector graphics program similar to Inkscape but a bit more artistic focused and Krita is the second most used KDE project after the Plasma desktop shell itself. Um, so the only KDE project more people are using than Krita is Plasma. I think that's really interesting. Um, and Richard, I think what is kind of interesting about that is that Krita is used by a lot of people on Windows and Mac OS in addition to Linux. Now the fact that Plasma is still beating them out tells me that they're not more popular than Photoshop or anything because then they'd probably be above Plasma honestly, um, but I think it's really interesting. I have seen a lot of people on um, on Linux community forums online talking about Krita who mention that they're not actually using Linux. Uh, they're just here to talk about Krita because they're using that on another operating system. Um, but yeah, they're more popular than... What are some other popular KDE apps? I mean, Kden Live is available for all, uh, all platforms now as well. They've got Windows builds and stuff, but... Krita is more popular than that. Um, I don't know. I guess a lot of the KDE apps are kind of niche, aren't they? Yeah. But to me, it was interesting that they're, they're just behind the like desktop itself, and they're yeah. not integrated. Like for mine with Kubuntu, they weren't packaged with it. Right. So it's not just... These are actual people who wanted it. They weren't just getting it by default. Yeah. So you can definitely say that a lot of people actually are using it overall, and particularly... I think it's good if it's getting people who weren't familiar with the Linux community overall like into the Linux community. I think that's kind of cool. I don't know. In your case, maybe if, since they were just there to talk about Krita, I'm not sure they were fully <laughs> integrating into the Linux community or using Linux. But it is nice that it's at least making people more aware of it. And so probably its success will help at least KDE and Linux overall, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also worth noting you can use Krita on, like, GNOME or something and still be using Linux and Krita, but not Plasma. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was really interesting that there are so many KDE apps. I wonder now that Falcon is a KDE application, if they start gaining any traction as a browser, um, they might be some some competition. But yeah, um, if you're looking for an, an art application on Linux or just on any platform, Krita is there if you want it. And I also wanted to talk about this Fedora 27 server. Hey, Richard, a couple months ago, Fedora 27 was released. Did you notice that there was no server edition? Um, no, I, I don't actually follow Fedora a whole lot. Yeah, so. I didn't even notice I wasn't either. quite aware of that. Yeah, I mean, I've got Fedora installed on a on a spare laptop. Um, it's actually an old MacBook with a Core 2 Duo in it that's got Fedora 32-bit installed. But yeah, this was pretty interesting. I read that Fedora 27 server was finally released, and I didn't even realize it wasn't released to begin with. What happened was Fedora was trying to replace their server edition with something called modular server. And they've had so many issues with it that they're just, they've scrapped that, they're releasing the regular server version after all, and then the modularity subproject is going back to the drawing board to figure out what happened and how they can do it better. Um, the whole thing with modularity was they wanted to enable Fedora to quote, deliver multiple versions of components on different life cycles across multiple base OS releases. Um, so it sounds like they were wanting to really muddy up release cycles and, and release dates and things, uh, possibly make it easier to install different versions of things that you wouldn't normally get to install on certain versions of the distro. Um, but yeah, it's a, a pretty complex thing they were trying to do. And the core issue boiled down to with their old modular server edition they were trying to launch, if any random piece of software is not contained in a module, then it would not be available on modular server at all. And so apparently wow. there were, yeah, yeah. So apparently there were um, some kind of important applications that were not available in a module. Um, so the server working group and the modularity working group decided that uh, rather than pushing out a version of the distro that doesn't have any applications in its repo, uh, which Fedora already has fairly small repos to begin with. They decided that they would just release the regular server version. They'll be back at it with modularity in the future, but uh, not this time. Yeah, I feel like it sounds like they probably need a fair amount of planning to that, and they yeah. didn't quite and go in as possibly with their planning as they probably should have. Backward compatibility or something, yeah. Um, so we'll see where that goes. And the last thing I wanted to mention this week, here is a GNOME merge request. It is titled, Remove the Desktop. All right, now Richard, if I told you that GNOME was planning to remove the desktop, just without even knowing anything else, what would you guess that means, remove the desktop? I almost thought of like the desktop environment itself for some reason, yeah, but that would like, make sense since they are a desktop environment. The but... wallpaper or something, yeah. Yeah, um, it's just black back there, you just have a terminal. Or just, just take the screen away and make things hover in midair. I mean, we want a better UI, right guys? We, we need a better experience. Uh, what this actually is, is GNOME has re removed entirely the ability to display icons on the desktop. Now, with GNOME 3, they took away icons on the desktop by default, uh, but Ubuntu has them on by default, which they always did, even with GNOME 2. You know, GNOME has been trying to get rid of desktop icons for quite a while, but um, most distros that ship GNOME turn it on by default. A lot of people use GNOME Tweak Tool to turn desktop icons on by default. Uh, there are certain things that you want on your desktop sometimes, especially when you're using GNOME, 
Um, the default behavior before, a while back, was to have when you inserted a CD or a DVD or when you plug in a flash drive, any external media would appear on your desktop to, for you to get too easily, similar to Mac OS. But yeah, they have now just removed the ability to put icons on the desktop, so GNOME Tweak Tool will no longer be able to enable that feature because it's not even going to be there under the hood in GNOME. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, overall, I don't like it because I always like the idea of being able to have some desktop icons, even if overall I want to try and keep my desktop pretty limited. Yeah. And I do like, even on Windows, I try and keep my desktop fairly limited and just pin a lot of stuff to the taskbar. But I still feel like it's, in my view, it's still a necessity to have. I feel like it should still be an option for people to want to have that if they use GNOME. So completely removing it, I guess, from the API and it all together seems pretty like extreme to me but yeah i mean i don't want to be hypocritical because i'm on kde right now and i don't have desktop icons enabled however kde recently changed their default behavior to have desktop icons enabled whereas before they didn't um so i wonder if anyone's going to switch over from gnome to kde because of this change probably at least one or two people out there in the the number of people using these projects but yeah that has happened now if you absolutely need gnome and you absolutely need desktop icons Fear not, there is a extension available uh, to add desktop icons. And as we all know, GNOME extensions always last forever. They never break because it's always easy to maintain them and the GNOME developers make it easy for the lives of extension developers to do crazy, insane things like adding desktop icons. So if you're one of those niche users who uses such a fringe feature as desktop icons, you can use an extension for now I would warn you, though, that if you're attached to that, you should either start weaning yourself off of them or take a look at other desktops. Whew, and that is all of our news this week, Richard. That was a lot, um, but that was a, a good episode this week. Hey, I wanted to mention that I opened up, I kind of cleaned up the Nerd on the Street Discord server this week. So if you find any news stories throughout the week and you want to just see what I think about them, or maybe Richard will hang out in the Discord as well, uh, discord.nots.co is the address to get an invite to our Discord server. I know it's proprietary. Um, I tried pushing open source forums and stuff for a long time, but nobody's <laughs> using them. We've got a rolling release forum as well, but nobody's using that. Uh, but it would be really helpful if viewers of the show submitted stories for us to talk about. Um, and one of the ways you can do that is on our Discord server. So yeah, discord.nots.co. You can chat with us about things. I'm even happy to have discussions in real time with you about news stories when I've got time over there on the Discord server. So yeah, I wanted to mention that. Hey, Richard, thank you so much for being here this week. If people want to find more about you throughout the week, where can they go? Um, Glorif22 on Twitter or um, minecraftmedia.net or latramedia.com are my two main websites right now. All right. And you can find me and all the other videos at nerdonthestreet.com. For now, though, that's all the news we've got. So we'll see you guys next time. I'm Jacob Kaufman. I'm Richard Bimmer. Keep using Linux, everybody. Bye. Bye.